I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your nighttime other side of the Atlantic co-host, Matt Bernico. <laughs> and I'm your uh, evening time other side of the Atlantic co-host, Dean Deloff. All right, folks, I'm five hours ahead in the future of Dean. And the only thing I can tell you about the future, what's going to happen later today, is that it's going to get dark out. And I, we should probably be pretty glad about that, honestly. I think it, it's good, right? <laughs> It would be bad if it was light all the time. I don't know. In some places, it basically is. That's what the beginning of the summer is like here, actually. It is light all the time, and <laughs> it's not great for sleeping. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, here in Canada, it's about to get dark all the time, and I'm looking forward to it, I gotta say. Yeah, that's cool. Um, nighttime all the time. Sounds great. Um, that's not what we're talking about this week. We're talking about planetary theology. This is part two. We started talking about it last week on the show. If you don't know or didn't listen or don't recall, Tissa Balasuria, he's a Sri Lankan priest um, who wrote a book called Planetary Theology. And it's a really interesting, I, I don't know, like meta commentary about liberation theology and other contextual theologies and how they sort of exist in the world, um, alongside also his kind of own thoughts about um, the ways that Christianity might reform itself and uh, not uh, not reject, maybe, but like <laughs> deconstruct, for lack of a better word, uh, some <laughs> of the unquestioned Western values that it's just like uncritically accepted. So we talked about that a lot last week, and it was cool. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about the a, a few other chapters in the book this week. Dean, what's like a good way to encapsulate what we did last week? Or like, what's a what's a good takeaway from that discussion for people who maybe didn't listen or skipped or um, aren't, as, aren't as studious as people who listen to every single episode? <laughs> Great question. Uh, let's see. I think, well, for me, at least I can say what I retained from reading it <laughs> last week, and maybe that'll help. Uh, one thing I really liked about Belisaria is that he's really trying to articulate like the world system that we live in, the world system of capitalism and how Christianity has contributed to that system and how we might be able to think of Christianity differently or the language he uses is uh, have a, a conversion to a Christianity more defined by solidarity than by these other kind of ways that Christians find to like alienate themselves from each other and from the world around them. And I think that is actually a pretty profound uh, pitch to say that maybe Christianity can reorient itself around solidarity as an organizing principle instead of around maybe being more defensive in the face of like 
secular society or other kinds of Christians. And uh, it's probably worth reminding folks as well that Balasuria, he's writing this book, but he also had a pretty big role to play in doing that very project. He was one of the founders of EWAT, the Ecumenical Association of Third World Theologians, which is a historically pretty wild group of, uh, of exactly what it sounds like, theologians from all over the, the Third World, the Global South, meeting together, and uh, they produced all kinds of theological documents. There's lots of conferences. Um, Orbis Books has published all kinds of like proceedings from EWAP meetings in English, and uh, it's very cool that Balasiria was one of the, the founding people. So he's like not only you know reflecting on it in Sri Lanka as a, a Catholic priest, but he's also participating in in this project, trying to reimagine Christianity along the lines of uh, of solidarity in these kind of institutional ways. So we thought uh, you know all the stuff we talked about last week was fun, uh, great to think about Christianity in the world system. But Balasuria has some pretty interesting speculations or suggestions on how that might actually also impinge on what it means to be a Christian, which I think is like maybe the harder sell of the book or the harder part to to navigate. Uh, and we're going to do it. We're taking the challenge this week. We're going to sort it out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's well, OK, hang on. Let me let me just say what we're going to talk about really quick. Um, we're going to talk about the last two chapters in uh, his book, Planetary Theology. Uh, the first chapter is called Worship in Word and Deed. And it is about liturgy and sort of like uh, different cultural practices that could be maybe a part of Christianity that aren't normally a part of Christianity, especially um, from Asia um, specifically. And then the last chapter he wrote kind of kind of concludes the book is called Toward the Spirituality of Justice. And I think that one is good. Um, unequivocally without, without money problems. Um, both these chapters are cool. And I think that, uh, the, the section on worship is, uh, really challenging actually. And I, I think Dean and I were joking before we started that like, if a white person from the U S had written this chapter, I would have been like <laughs> very suspicious and pretty unhappy <laughs> about it. Um, but I think the context that Balasuria is writing out of actually makes it make a lot more sense than I think if somebody in the United States is writing it. We'll get into that more in a minute about like maybe why that is. But anyways, I'll just say um, we're going to talk more about ecumenicism um, and the the role of culture in worship. And then um, we're going to talk about justice. We all love it. You've heard you've heard about it before and now you're going to hear about it again. And you're going to be really into it, I'm sure. Anyways, uh, Tissa Balasaria, he's a really interesting guy. And this book is definitely worth spending some more time on this week. So we're going to do that and, uh, you know, figure, figure it out. Figure out um, how to uh, deal with the hegemony of Western culture in Christianity. Um, I don't know, Dean. Go ahead and why don't you go ahead and get started here? <laughs> sure. Well, maybe I can uh, set some of the, the stage here a bit, even by talking about some of the context in which Balasaria is writing so Balasuria, he's a Catholic priest. I think we mentioned at the end of the last episode, he also found himself in hot water with the Vatican. In fact, he was even excommunicated uh, briefly <laughs> and then was brought back into the church and kind of absolved or uh, forgiven or whatever, um, reunited in the Catholic Church. But he uh, had this kind of open confrontation with the Vatican and specifically with Cardinal Ratzinger, eventually Pope Benedict. And uh, I think all that context actually really matters for this book, Planetary Theology, 
because when he's talking about things like worship and the liturgy and uh, kind of rethinking what a spirituality of justice actually looks like in practice, you can kind of imagine probably pretty quickly that that's going to rub other people in the Catholic Church the wrong way. Um, you you just shouldn't mess with that stuff. You know, that's the one of the big arguments in the Catholic Church, even one that's happening right now, that there are some people who really want to preserve the most sort of uh, the highest Latin form of the mass that there is and with no budging to kind of cultural accommodation. And Balasuria is doing basically the opposite, saying we need to have as much accommodation to culture as we can. But I think it would be a mistake to read Balasuria's proposals here as kind of capitulating to like a basically boring liberal form of Catholicism as against yeah. the radical traditional form of Catholicism. What he's doing is like a lot deeper and it's tied not only to solidarity, but I think this is one of the most interesting things that comes out in the book. It's also tied to Balisteria thinking that the church has to make good on some of the promises that it made in the Second Vatican Council. And I think that is actually a huge piece of it. And maybe like for people who don't know much about that or don't know much about Catholic inside baseball. I don't know, Matt, is it worth like explaining that <laughs> for a minute? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think it's worth it. Yeah, lay it out. All right. Vatican II, as it's sometimes called, was a big conference in the 1960s, and the shorthand for it is usually that uh, the church kind of reevaluated its relationship to modernity, to the modern world. And it was opened by one pope and closed by another pope, because um, the, the first pope died in the middle of it. And it really revolutionized um, Catholicism in a lot of ways. So liturgically, for example... Uh, the example I always think about is not only do we not usually say mass in Latin anymore, we say it in our vernacular language. So for me, that's English, but also even little things like the priest used to turn and face away from the congregation uh, during mass. And now the priest is supposed to face the congregation uh, during mass. So there, there's all kinds of reforms, lots of kind of uh, some people describe it kind of rightly and wrongly as the democratization of the Catholic Church. That's like maybe putting it a little too strongly, but certainly those impulses are there. And when it comes to liturgy and worship and why Balasuria is interested in that council, uh, the Vatican also had said that uh, in local contexts, not only should languages, vernacular languages be adopted, but even cultural practices could be brought into the liturgy insofar as they're, you know, consistent with Catholicism. And uh, the Vatican, like, I think in some complicated ways, tried to thread the needle around separating what's cultural and what's, what's religious. And we can talk more about that in a minute. But basically, the idea is uh, the council had promised to really affirm the local, um, not just flavor of like where the mass is taking place, but the real local culture of where a mass is taking place. And Balasuria is like, that was a great promise, but we do not do that in Sri Lanka. And <laughs> we don't do it in Asia. We don't really do it, uh, you know, around the world. That 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 sort of opening was never really stepped through. And you can see lots of interesting experiments with that kind of permission throughout the world. Um, in Latin America, for example, a lot of masses will incorporate indigenous uh, practices or music. Or um, even in the United States, there are some pretty wild stories about, like, at the height of the Black Power movement, you had, like, black priests in Chicago trying to uh, incorporate, like, different cultural traditions into their own masses. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of creative stuff going on. But Balasuri is kind of saying, we've never really taken that and run with it. And he wants to say, what if we did sort of appeal to that authority, the Vatican Council, 
and uh, try to rethink our lit- our liturgies along the lines of solidarity. All right, that's a lot. Is that enough, Matt? Am I missing anything? No, I think that's good. Um, yeah, that's exactly what Balseri is at after. But then also, I think he takes like three more steps after that, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A little, a little bit further. Well, here, I'm going to read this first part here to kind of get us on the path of, uh, of this first chapter about worship in word and deed. Balasiria writes, During the centuries when Christianity was allied to the Roman Empire and Western domination, the liturgy, especially the Latin liturgy, educated Christians to accept the prevailing social order. Today, the rubrics of Latin liturgy have been simplified, the texts altered to include the bulk of the New Testament, the role of the saints in liturgy has been greatly reduced in the accent placed on the life of Christ. Thousands of songs have been composed that reflect the aspirations of the people. There's more spontaneity and room for, culture, for different cultural expressions. In Africa and Asia, there is a growth of indigenous religious music. The Indian Rite Mass that has been accepted by the Catholic Bishop of India incorporates many aspects of Indian culture within the Eucharistic liturgy. These all are positive gains, but a much deeper transformation is required. Liturgy is to respond to contemporary and planetary needs. So, yeah, I mean, kind of what you were saying a minute ago, Dean, right? That, that Vatican II makes this opening... And in a lot of ways, the church has responded to this in, you know, some ways, but not in not in the, the deeper transformation that Balasuria thinks is is necessary. Um, he goes on to say, I'll just read this, this other little bit, and, and not all of it. This is quite an exhaustive passage. He, uh, Balasuria says that the liturgy should be reorganized to provide for personal and collective focalization on such themes as food, shelter, family, sex, environment and work and a few other things too. He has like this extremely long paragraph of all the things that liturgy should kind of help us think about. And uh, I guess it's interesting though, because it's like, uh, you know, liturgy is sometimes otherworldly um, in a big way, especially if you, you know, <laughs> are part of a really high church tradition, like the Catholic church, or I don't know, some kind of Anglo Catholic uh, traditions as well. And that's not all bad. I don't think. Um, it's even some good, I might say. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> all he's trying to say here is that there's this like this opening where maybe liturgy is too beholden to these like um, these uh, Western notions, and we should open it up to think more about um, I don't know things that people actually deal with in their daily lives. And uh, I think it's a it's a good point, and um, not one that's I think too hard to swallow at this level. Yeah, I think that's right. Um... You know, the key, too, is to affirm that the mass takes place within people's lives and people have needs, you know, like when you go to mass and you are also thinking about all kinds of other stuff, like how are you going to pay your bills or why are your kids, um, I don't know, like starving or they can't, you know, even just afford like cool clothes at school or whatever, all the kinds of things that normal people think about when you're in in life. Uh, when you go to mass, uh, the mass should be able to speak to those kinds of concerns, you know, and I think that there's something about that that just makes sense. And in some cases, masses already uh, kind of respond to those needs, you know, like in, in better and worse ways, like sometimes they sing the national anthem during mass, which I think is completely absurd. Uh, also, sometimes they will have, you know, hymns for a particular uh, day like if you're in a progressive parish let's say they might have a, a a song or a hymn related to like work for labor day or something like that you know like there's already some of that that happens but balasuria wants to say it shouldn't just be a uh like an afterthought or kind of something you slide in and you either pick it up or you don't <laughs> you know if you have ears to hear it's like 
the mass should really um, be a, a place where people feel like their situation is affirmed, even alongside the other stuff, you know, the, the important stuff, like the sacramental life of, of uh, a community or taking the Eucharist in a mass. Like, Balsiri is not saying that we should quit doing that, but in order to make those things meaningful, it should happen in a space that, you know, affirms the rest of people's lives as well, which I think is pretty compelling. I'd like to go to a mass like that. It sounds pretty good. Yeah, I think so. Um, one that was really focused on people's lives. That sounds good. Um, but I still think there's something a bit more radical that Balasuri is trying to get at here. And let's, we can start going in that direction. I think um, he has, you know, he has some things to say about Christians and, you know, we need to completely rethink the way that we deal with liturgy in terms of culture and um, at one point, he says, Christians need a profound cultural revolution to transform them into a force that will subvert injustice and tyranny. And the liturgy is a part of that. Um, that's all cool. And, you know, I think at the surface level, not even that challenging. If, if you're interested in, in the left and Christianity, this should all be like, okay, sounds good. We can have liturgies that, that are more about work and justice and all kinds of things. Um, but then he kind of gets it, it to the heart of the problem and explains exactly like how deep he thinks this goes. And I think it's challenging and interesting, if not mm -hmm. hard. But anyways, he says this, a major obstacle to liturgical reform in this direction is the way in which Christians, including priests and bishops in Africa and Asia, have been brought up. Due to a strictly disciplined training, which regard uniformity as a major value and, and due also to disregard of ancient cultures, even by native Christians, it has not been easy to carry out the reform and adaptation called for by the council. That's Vatican II. Church leadership must provide a greater impetus in this direction. And then he says that we can distinguish between the general culture of a country and elements that derive specifically from its religious heritage. General cultural elements can be considered for incorporation in the liturgy without any serious theological difficulty. So what he's talking about here is not like strictly about like having a very socialist liturgy or something, though that could be a part of it, certainly. But it's um, recognizing that uh, different cultural forms could and, you know, should be kind of incorporated into liturgical expressions that, you know, a, um, a, a Catholic mass in Sri Lanka should look Sri Lankan and, you know, a Catholic mass in India should look Indian and so on. But I guess... I, and and I, I, again, I don't really have a problem with this at all, but it gets into some like really tricky, I think, anthropological positions. And like uh, when he says that, you know, we can just distinguish religious heritage from cultural heritage and kind of sift those things out neatly, uh, because I don't think you can. I think it's actually really tough to do that. Mm -hmm. But he kind of has this position where it's like, well, you know, in um, it, in the things that are like essentially uh, essential to other religions, like those don't necessarily need to be incorporated in a, an explicit way, but like the cultural things that are only like maybe a little bit um, influenced by some other religious expression could be. And he, he names a few things specifically, but anyways, I think it's like a very cool idea. I'm not against it whatsoever, but I think it's just like very tough to really think, think through like what is actually, um, cultural and what's religious and how you might incorporate that into a Catholic mass or any other type of Christian liturgy in a way that is like, um, I think respectful to both traditions and not trying to like overwrite any one of them. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it'd be, it would be bad to like, I think treat the Christian tradition 
with um like it's something that you can just kind of like do whatever you want with that would be bad but it would also be bad to like appropriate other religious discourses and cultural aesthetics and so on into christianity uncritically and that Mm -hmm. seems like a very big possibility yeah no i agree and i think that belisari is alive to that like he will often criticize throughout the book uh the assumption that all religions are basically the same or that christianity is just the pinnacle of all religions and so you're just sort of trying to affirm the other religions as like a step along the way. Like he does have a pretty, um, I don't know how to put it. Like he has a very strong pluralism, I guess, uh, Mm -hmm. for a, for a Catholic priest. Um, and I think what he's doing though, is basically just like putting his finger on the big problem of Christianity, which is that (laughs) Christianity, uh, the only way that it likes to deal with other people in general, you know, or with other traditions, even is by either pretending that secretly they are Christian already and we just have to like (laughs) figure out the Christian parts and then take that into Christianity uh, or like completely cutting off, you know, any sort of uh, relationship to that culture or religious tradition, however we want to parse it out and be like, you just can't do those things because those aren't Christian. And I think Balasari is trying to do something different than both those uh, impulses to be like, can we affirm other traditions within our own liturgical space? Uh, but I guess uh, <laughs> I agree, like, it's not convincing as a sort of solution, but I do think that uh, he is, like, rightly raising the questions and kind of even, like, daring to put forward suggestions, some of which I think are pretty good and work, and some of which are, like, maybe we should, like, workshop that one a little bit longer, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, well, here's uh, here's an example to maybe, like, <laughs> display some of the tension here um this one i think actually does work in a pretty interesting way um but we'll talk about one that that doesn't that doesn't a little bit later on he says consider for example meditation the effect of self-purification through reflection in buddhism which places great emphasis on meditation it's an effort at self at self-liberation from the sorrowful cycle of birth and death all countries in which Buddhism has a strong impact are marked by this approach. Burma, Cambodia, China, Korea, Japan, Sri Lanka, and Thailand. Christian liturgy could benefit greatly from a serious consideration of the Buddhist type of meditation. Through its sacraments, Christianity could emphasize the necessity for meaningful personal response on the part of participants in the liturgy, starting with values common to both other religions and Christianity, and communicating through them what is specifically transcendent in Christian revelation. Christian liturgy would thus have meaning for followers of other religions who attend such Christian ceremonies as weddings or funerals. This seems like kind of okay to me. Um, like, like you mentioned a minute ago, right? Like this is putting the finger on the problem with Christianity in general. And this is like maybe a good solution or one that I think makes sense. I think it makes sense specifically though, because of the characteristics of Buddhism and like, <laughs> you know, Buddha's not God. And I think that's like an important piece of it. <laughs> Right. That that was that makes it kind of work. Um, and, you know, noting the resonance between between those two religions, I think is is fine. Um, it, it's not without complication, but like as like a a point where religions could touch, there are certainly worse examples possible. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, and I mean, that's maybe a more palatable example as well, because there is so much uh, syncretism between those two traditions, even in the West. Maybe it's like easier to, you know, like everybody thinks about Thomas Merton or something like you can kind of call to mind somebody who's already been 
thinking about how to draw those uh, practices together, but it does get more complicated um, as he talks. And I think that sometimes he struggles to to not lapse into the kind of version of Christian engagement with others that treats everybody as as that, you know, a, a step on the teleological path that inevitably culminates in Christian worship. So, for example, um, at one point he's talking about like, other leaders of religions, like um, he mentions Muhammad and Buddha and, and others, he says, how can Christians honor these leaders of other religions? And what relationship will this have to the liturgy? Could not Christians celebrate certain observances in honor of these saintly leaders? For instance, why not join with Buddhists in public veneration of the Buddha on Visak Day when his birth, enlightenment, and death are commemorated? Further, within the context of the liturgy, Christians could recall the virtuous doctrines of other religions. Could not Christians thank God collectively and in public for the signal graces of the spiritual leadership of the great Asian religious leaders? Do their lives not have a relationship to the Paschal mystery? Such an approach would would open great possibilities for interreligious cooperation. More goodwill would be generated and others would see the true universality of Christianity, a faith that has come to fulfill what is good, not destroy it. And again, like, I think there's parts of this that I really like. Like, yeah, for sure. I think Christians should celebrate the Buddha's birthday. It seems like a very fun thing. My wife went to a Buddha birthday party this uh, this summer, and it seemed like a blast. Like, that is great. Uh, And on the flip side, too, like, as a Christian person, I really enjoyed reading, like, what, you know, Muslims and Jews have to say about Jesus. Like, it opens up other dimensions of our own faith tradition. So I think there's, like, ways of kind of you know, doing that in a mutual way that kind of makes sense without obliterating the differences between them. But uh, it's any time that you get a kind of like a sentence like, do their lives not have a relationship to the Paschal mystery that you're like, man, maybe they do. But also <laughs> so hard to not metabolize uh, others in that process. And I think that's the big challenge that Balasiri is trying to uh, to sort out or like the tightrope that he's walking is how do you really have a, a truly universal Christianity, one that speaks to all people while also, you know, being, I don't know, uh, being respectful that Christianity has a, a nasty habit of turning its universalism into uh, like a machine to, you know, chop up and destroy other kinds of religions. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. A great influence in my life is this very nice old man who I took a lot of classes with uh, within college. His name is Matthias Zonizer, and he is a really fascinating guy. He started off as like a missionary, but like became really good at Arabic. And then like his scholarly life has been devoted to thinking about what like Islamic scholars say about Jesus. And like, that's his whole thing. So he wrote this book, I'm trying to remember like what year, I think it was like 2007, 2008, it's a neat book, but not widely read, but it's called The Mission and Death of Jesus in Islam and Christianity. And in the book, he's like, just kind of like commenting, what do Islamic scholars say about Jesus? Like what's in the Quran about Jesus? What's like in like the larger tradition of Islam about Jesus? And like, what's interesting in his work is just kind of the way that he treats it. Not that like, um, that Islam is like on some kind of slow path to accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior or something. Cause like, that's <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> um, but that like, uh, that, uh, that there's like some kind of, at least a, a bit of commonality between um, Islam and Christianity in the sense that like, they both think that Jesus is a really profoundly important person in the history of the world or something. And that there's like, you know, there's a, just kind of like what Balsari is saying here, that there's like a, a, a moment or like a space for interreligious collaboration. I think that's mm-hmm. really cool. But I think at the end of the day, like it's so difficult because 
you know, it just depends on where you kind of place Christianity in this like larger, um, you know, discourse about other religions. Like if ultimately Christianity is like, you know, above all other religions, then you're going to constantly try to subsume them all to it and make them, Mm -hmm. you know, subservient in one way or another, or, or say, you know, or, or paint them as like less evolved forms of thought. And that's bad. Um, But I think there's a different model of, I don't know, interreligious thought that maybe you could, you could bring up here. That's like, not that like Christianity is above all other religions, but Christianity is among other religions and that, you know, people are trying to figure it all out along the way. And Christianity is an attempt at that, right? It's a particular cultural appropriation of different cultural appropriations that have gotten us here. (laughs) So I guess all I'm trying to say here is that (laughs) there's like, this is like a very interesting idea. I'm here for it. Uh, to Sabalisaria, thank you for these ideas. But also, it's just like a lot of unpacking to do. I think of the larger <laughs> like sociological context and like the ways that theology works in this like sort of like weird meta level. Yeah, I mean, it's also I think like we said a million years ago in an episode on secularism and religion. You know, there's a whole conversation about how Christianity basically invented the word religion and then decided who is religious and who's not and you know, now we're at this stage where we're trying to sort of, I guess, reduce Christianity to like being on an even playing field with all the other so-called religions, except that Christianity is like the one that already kind of loaded the dice. So, you know, there's like lots of complicated things going on here. Yeah. Um, but uh, I do think that, you know, fundamentally what Balasari is trying to do, again, is to recognize that like Christianity should be able to reach out to other people in a way that is like unintimidated by them and even ready and willing to celebrate and affirm them. And I think the challenge is to be like, is to basically take that up and say, okay, how do we actually work out the wrinkles of that? And maybe at a certain point, like you kind of can't in a fundamental way. And that's not such a bad thing. Like Christianity is not Islam, you know, Christianity is not Buddhism and like that is fine. Uh, but how do you sort of find a way of, you know, affirming others from your own kind of starting place and kind of see where that leads? He does sort of end this chapter in an interesting way with a note on mysticism, which I think is probably familiar to lots of people. Mysticism is like the great equalizer, I think, <laughs> generally among uh, different traditions and so on. But I think the way he does it is pretty interesting Um, He says, mystical experience is the deepest intuition of the divine that human beings have described. All the great religions have at their heart such a deep experience. Um, He names a bunch of uh, different kinds. He says, um, this is the substance of our relationship to God, to the absolute, to ultimate values. It is where our authenticity and our relationships are tested at the bar of conscience. And this is probably the, uh, (laughs) the wild part. He says, nor should we exclude from this consideration the finer qualities of humanists and revolutionary traditions. A great scientist or artist has an element of the mystic. A Lenin or a Mao Zedong cannot be fully appreciated without seeing the (laughs) mystical traits of their struggles and their characters. The classless, stateless society of Marx and Engels recalls Christians to their long-forgotten apocalyptic vision and vocation. The lifestyle of Ho Chi Minh was as attractive in its simplicity and daring as those of the great religious liberators. Humanity will be the richer if, as whole peoples, we can come to appreciate such peaks of human endeavor as they consciously or unconsciously touch something of the divine. And he says, lastly, the grace of the Christian bids these signs to be recognized and praised for the marvels God has worked among us. Uh, An extremely funny moment where Balasiri is like, yeah, yeah, like what if we, you know, 
embraced like some uh what if we all like dressed more simply in the liturgy what if we use some different languages and so on and anyway also what if like lenin and mao were mystical beings like a, a pretty wild uh left turn at the very end but uh yeah. i think you know it helps to sort of emphasize that when he's thinking about pluralism it's extending even beyond like what we call religious traditions that's sort of the scope of his universality the chapter is very funny for that reason because it does begin like we should think of a radical liturgy that addresses people's needs. And then it takes this giant veer into like this interesting, like ecumenicism. And then at the very end, he's like, and don't forget to think about Ho Chi Minh. And like, okay, (laughs) I won't. Exactly. Celebrate the Buddha's birthday, but also celebrate Ho Chi Minh's birthday. And uh, don't forget to go to mass and wear, uh, you don't need to wear your Sunday best. It's okay. It's, it's a a good (laughs) message. One that I can get behind. Wear your Monday worst. (laughs) That's right. Okay, um, so that's all very interesting, and uh, all of that conversation doesn't really go away. I think uh, what comes in the next chapter is kind of happening in light of that in some interesting ways. Uh, so the the next chapter that we're going to talk about is the very last chapter of the book, and it's called Toward a Spirituality of Justice. And um, isn't that cool? Wouldn't that be a cool thing to think about? Um, <laughs> spirituality, whenever I hear that word, I kind of cringe. I don't like it. I recoil. And I think about, you know, um, I think about all of the youth group conversations about how you should talk to God every day and do your devotions. But what he's talking about here is a little something different. And for that, I'm very grateful. So to contextualize some of this, Balisteria says, the human person seeks selfhood, self-expression, self-realization in all societies. The young are asserting their rights. Women are discovering and affirming new potentialities for personhood. The suppressed people of the world are revolting against oppression. In this vast and rapidly changing world, self-realization at all levels is a primary concern of all. What are we concerned with, then, is a spirituality of liberation, whereby persons free themselves personally and societally to become capable of genuine freedom, responsibility, and love. Um, I think this is an important conversation because, uh, well, spirituality to me, I guess from in this register at least, it makes me think of, um, not youth group, but the ways in which we, uh, in our brains, trick ourselves into being not free, you know, to holding on to all kinds of other types of um, bad patterns of thought, bad self-expressions, and like negative uh, ways that we think about our relationships to other people that keep us kind of chained up in in the status quo. But what he's saying here is we should think about something different, a spirituality of liberation where we're, um, you know, trying to find out how we can get through this, but not just materially, but like, you know, in, in a way that you, uh, you kill the cop in your brain, you, um, <laughs> you unchain your brain from work or something. I don't know, all of these things together, I suppose. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, it's, interesting to think of not just the theology of liberation but a spirituality of liberation and i think that raises lots of interesting questions uh that i usually don't pose to myself <laughs> not a very spiritual person maybe in many respects um and the way balasiri talks about it though does kind of open it up in an interesting way uh one thing i found really fascinating about this chapter is in that process of trying to articulate that spirituality he appeals to the language of uh, virtue and vice, and in particular to virtue ethics, I guess, but in a way that you probably haven't thought of before. Um, virtues and vices uh, are important parts of Catholic moral theology and philosophy. They are kind of the language that the church uses to talk about all kinds of stuff. And I feel pretty allergic to them a lot of the time, only because they are so ubiquitous and they just get used to, like, I don't know, 
do and say boring things <laughs> and things that are not very helpful. And uh, nevertheless, I think the way that Balasuria talks about it is helpful for finding a way into a kind of spirituality that they use that language. So uh, the big one is obviously justice. That's the big virtue for him. And we'll talk about maybe a few more in a minute. But he says, justice is the virtue by which we endeavor to give one's due to each. It requires a fair distribution of wealth, income, and opportunities in society and relationships in which everyone's human dignity is recognized and respected. Justice is a virtue that has to be acquired. Its acquisition demands that we struggle against the contrary vices, which spring ultimately from selfishness. Justice is not the charity of social service paternalism. And uh, he also goes on to say, growth in social justice requires a collective struggle against contrary vices. The virtue of social justice cannot be acquired or even studied individually, for social justice is concerned with the distribution of goods and services within a community and relationships among its members. Hence, it necessarily moves beyond the purely individual aspects of a person's life. To advance in justice, we, ha- we must have an understanding of the type of social situation within which we live and make our decisions. So when he's talking about a spirituality of justice, he's really talking about cultivating a, a collective uh, that is capable of even acquiring that kind of virtue, of building uh, a sense of, of justice at all. And I think that has at least kind of like maybe brought me back into a, a more interesting dialectical relationship between, you know, self and society or inner and outer, external and internal kind of ways of thinking about my own faith. Uh, if we can think about uh, spirituality and virtue as something that we that like compels us to uh, to be in a community seeking justice, I guess I feel like more more apt or more prone to actually sort out like what am I doing spiritually in my spiritual life? Yeah, I think so. Um, it makes a lot of sense to think through that way. I mean, this is not like I think also an unprecedented type of idea in uh, in moral philosophy that like. Um, that justice is something that you have to strive for. I do like it in this particular formation, though, because he does say, you know, he goes through the whole justice is fairness kind of thing at the very beginning, which is like a, a pretty classical and normal, like normative reading of justice and like liberal political philosophy. But he goes on to say something I think that's a little bit more exciting, that it's something that you have to strive towards. It's it's collective struggle, um, which is great which is a departure from somebody like john rawls or whoever else you know it's quite quite different in an exciting way um all right well then to, to keep trucking along here uh to say a bit more about it he says although such such spirituality may have produced many saintly persons he's talking about christianity who are greatly dedicated to person-to-person service to the poor and the afflicted it was not associated with any movement for radical change in the world on the contrary, it was often an obstacle. It gave religious persons a high degree of complacency. Um, this is interesting because it kind of ties back into the larger conversation about liturgy he was talking about, uh, I guess, at the, at the beginning of this episode or the, the other chapter that we had read. Um, but interesting, though, because um, the saints, you know, they're the really good people. They're the ones that you should emulate. Um, everyone should be like St. Francis or whoever, right? Um, they're all so cool. But uh, he does kind of lay it out and just like, well, they're not ones that, <laughs> you know, they weren't they aren't revolutionaries in in the same way that I don't know Ho Chi Minh is, I guess, <laughs> uh, c- considerably different. So I guess that's just an interesting point, though, to make that uh, that uh, we don't we don't uh, conflate saintliness with like people who really struggle for social change within the uh, I mean, within the church tradition, the Catholic Church doesn't. Right. 
some um, some interesting exceptions actually in the Episcopal Church, but that's a whole other story, and uh, you know, complicated for its own reasons. Um, but anyways, a good point to draw out here that uh, in the conversation about justice within the church, you know, there are like you you mentioned, Dean, like you know, this is the justice the the virtue and vice conversation is how the church talks about it often. But like uh, when it comes to societal change, uh, and when you think about justice and like what justice actually requires, uh, the saints aren't really the ones who are necessarily doing those things always. Yeah. And maybe the challenge of Belisarius spirituality too, is to imagine a sort of sainthood that might be informed by these other kinds of virtues or other ways of thinking about them. Uh, For example, like he goes on to talk about um, courage, prudence, and moderation as virtues, which to me are not usually like revolutionary ideas, maybe courage, but the other two, you know, I don't know. They seem more conservative on the face. But he uh, talks about them in pretty interesting ways. Courage, you can probably guess, you know, you have to have courage to uh, to join a struggle and so on. But the other two, I think, are pretty profound. Um, for example, he says uh, when it comes to prudence, um, it matters to kind of like process like what's really going on and, and be wise about it or discern it. So he says prudence will decide on the issues that are worth fighting for, as well as the means to be used in the struggle. Prudence tells us when it's necessary to bypass an issue or pursue it to the extent of polarization. Prudence will help us calculate risks so that risks taken will yield results. Uh, It decides when to give oneself for a cause. The action of Che Guevara in joining the guerrillas may have seemed imprudent in the short term, but in the long term, it made an inestimable contribution to the cause. And I think that is pretty fascinating. Also, maybe because like when Che went to Bolivia, maybe that was not very prudent. (laughs) Like it gives you a a different sort of set of uh, criteria to think through things. And he he does the same with moderation, where basically he says like moderation is not about, you know, holding back. It's about basically like being being wise. He says uh, it requires that we respect persons at the stage at which they actually are while inviting them to transcend their self-interest or self-interest. Temperance counters the danger of arrogance, which can easily separate radical leadership from the masses. And uh, he goes on to say, prudence and moderation tell us uh, again what means are possible. It will always be suicidal to resort to means that are bound to fail. At other times, a long-armed struggle may be required, as happened in the case of Mozambique. So all that to say, like, you know, the saints in the spirituality that he's criticizing, maybe they are profound moral figures, but they they don't give you that revolutionary, you know, impetus. It's like figures like Che that do that. But maybe there's some other future for the tradition of sainthood that's informed by, you know, the reworking of basically like traditional concepts and terms. And I think that's like a pretty interesting contribution of Balasuri's book. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely, it is. Um. Well, the next piece of this chapter is kind of a lengthy um, explanation of like the biblical support for, you know, a spirituality of justice. And he goes through the Old Testament and the New Testament and talks about all, you know, all of the great stuff. A lot of things we've talked about in this podcast before. Um, it feels like it's hard, though, to like go through all of it in a way that does it justice because um, I feel like whenever I'm whenever I'm pulled into a conversation about the Bible, I want to like... Um, talk about a lot of historical things that maybe I don't know enough about. <laughs> but uh, just to give you, like a, I guess, an idea of like what he's thinking about with regards to the Bible, there is a section where he talks about the Magnificat and Mary. I thought that was at least something we could pull out because this is what the whole podcast is about. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Valseria says, Mary, the mother of Jesus, epitomizes this concern of God for the integral liberation of all persons. 
Her Magnificat is a revolutionary message, which has unfortunately been domesticated so that its daily recitation has little impact. In it, a threefold revolution is hymned cultural. He has routed the proud of heart. It's political. He has pulled down the princes from their thrones and exalted the lowly, and it's economic. The hungry he has filled with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Then uh, Belisaria says, Justice is the first demand of love of God and neighbor. It's a sacrament of the love of God. Anyways, I pulled this out because... I mean, it's a really good one. Um, I I like I like the way that he uh, he kind of notes out that there's like the the cultural, political, and economic dimensions to the Magnificat, and I think like I mean, obviously they're there and we know about them, but um, when he puts it out that way, it is kind of manifesto-y in a way that I've not thought about before. Um, and uh, then tying it all together with the the demand of love, right? Then this it becomes a, a real um, spiritual grounding, I think, for thinking through political movements and all kinds of other things. So pretty neat. Um, I like what he's doing in this, and uh, it's it's challenging. Um, it's challenging not only thinking about the history of Christianity, but it's challenging thinking about like what Christianity should be um, in, in these different registers that he's talking about with the Magnificat. But it's cool. It is cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, he leads you through that biblical stuff, but in a way that uh, that a theologian uniquely can. Um, the uh, I guess we're getting close to the, the end of the episode here, but there's so much uh, to go. There's lots of other cool stuff in this chapter about, like, even kind of heuristic concepts for evaluating political action. Um, he talks about sort of, like, risk and reward strategies, basically, um, one of my favorite parts I wanted to pull out is on uh, identifying with the oppressed, which I think is really a cool section. He talks about how if you really want to, you know, <laughs> have a spirituality of justice, you need to find ways of, of doing that. Um, and uh, he identifies a few of them. One is service to the oppressed. One is joining the oppressed in mind and heart. So kind of understanding what's going on. One is identifying with their struggle, building awareness and so on about like what is happening with uh, oppressed people. And the last is identifying a lifestyle and being poor physically in a kind of voluntary way. And he says that uh, suffering with the poor is possible for the affluent by identifying with them in thought. But it's when one feels physically in one's own body the pressures of poverty in food, transportation, clothing, the difficulty, difficulties of obtaining acceptance in a public office that one understands a little better the difficult condition of the poor, their inability to move out of their situation, a narrowness of outlook, their limited range of options, their limited staying power, and he lists a, b a bunch of other things as well. And uh, I think that there's something really profound about that. Also, there's this kind of challenge to be like, you know, like <laughs> I am, you know, a pretty uh, comparatively stable person in my life right now, economically and so on. But, you know, there have been times in my life when I've lived in pretty significant poverty, and it does definitely change the way that you think about issues in a big way. You know, uh, even things as simple as like relying on public transit or thinking about your rent or having a shitty landlord, all that kind of stuff. It's one thing to read about that stuff. It's another thing to like have to, you know, communicate with your landlord, and, like try to force them to do something they don't want to do. Um, I think that's really interesting. But the most important thing I think uh, that Valseria adds here. It's to say it's not enough to be poor externally. One more poor person is not the route to global liberation. There must be a deliberate and active joining in the struggle against oppression. And I think that's probably the biggest thing, because I think a lot of Christians will like praise the moral heroism of identifying with the poor. Um, and like rightly so, like it's good that people do that, you know, sell their possessions, live in community and so on. 
But as Bellisteria says, one more per- poor person isn't going to bring the system down, you know? Like, it matters to sort of build that collective in a big way. So all that to say, the chapter just has a lot of, like, cool categories and, and advice and challenges for thinking through, like, how to really put together Christian spirituality and, like, squaring that with political action. Yeah, totally. Well, let's round out the chapter in talking about um, holiness really quick. One of my favorite topics, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you can't leave those uh, Nazarene roots behind. I know, I can't. <laughs> That's right. I always got to think about holiness and sanctification. Um, but they, they look a little bit different from this vantage, and I appreciate it. So Balasaria says that in Christian spirituality, we can discern three levels or ways of understanding holiness. And they're good ones. <laughs> and surprisingly enough, they're not like the Nazarenes at all. Temperance and not playing cards is not among them at all. So that's great. He has these like, th- these are like these like three categories or three kind of places that you can see, uh, you can see holiness in, in your life where you could practice holiness, I guess. Sanctity as individual persons think of it within themselves in response to their consciences. This is the area known best by a person, the ultimate criterion of personal decision-making. So um, there's a certain holiness that you have within you when you're trying to like decide what you're going to do in the world and like what what works and what doesn't and like what you can bear and what you can't and like what you want to be a part of and what you don't want to, right? The personal decision-making piece. It's great. There's something holy about that particular encounter with yourself and like the, um, I don't know, the, the moral kind of things that you're willing to do. The second piece is sanctity is mediated through an institution that claims the right to indicate God's will for us. That is a community or church. Sometimes the nation state too claims this authority, for example, when it demands that citizens conform to its norms, even to the point of laying down their lives for it. So your community, your church, sometimes the nation state, they suggest, not suggest, <laughs> there's a certain <laughs> claim to indicate God's will in the world and like how we should act, right? You see this all, t- all, all kinds of like very distorted ways in the United States, um, you know, being a, a good patriotic citizen, right? A good God-fearing American, all that kind of stuff. But uh, it takes on a particularly different role when it's a different type of community or, you know, especially in... It, somewhere like Sri Lanka, it'd be a lot different, right? It wouldn't be gross. It would be good. Um, and then finally, the last one is sanctity as the search for the kingdom of God, the rule of righteousness for all persons, women and men, nations and racial groupings, religions. Um, he says that this is a more general norm that has to be discerned as we go through history and in conjunctures of events. The planetary age requires an integrated spirituality in which all three norms converge in the direction of a personal conscience and a community urging us toward the common good of humanity. I like these three categories, though, because it is kind of a helpful range of like the the scopes, I think, of like religious, well, religious thinking, but also like thinking in terms of politics and justice, right? Your individual level, the the level in which you're part of a community, and then finally, like, maybe like the virtual level where you're thinking about the world that's coming or something, right? These three, but these three things all, all together um, are um, a place where uh, Balasaria wants to say that like, you know, we have a certain agency and for sure, but also like the Holy Spirit is guiding you through these things and, um, and like is, is openly speaking to you about these particular like registers of, um, of justice, of political action and so on. Um, a very different type of holiness than yeah you'll find in <laughs> find the Nazarenes. 
I think so. Uh, and I think, it, you know, the the key there also is to balance the um, that kind of individual holiness piece, which is true and part of Christianity, you know, like we should live more lives and think that through. And that's what got all those Wesleyans so excited, I guess, for better and for worse. Um, <laughs> and and that's part of it. But uh, what Palisari is adding, and maybe this is the Catholic piece, is that you also have to find a way to square that with uh, with a community that's trying to to sort that out as well, and uh, even up to uh, a political community that's trying to to sort that out. You know, I think about like when we were reading about uh, Sergio Arce in Cuba, which strikes yeah. me as uh, a really good example of like what Bellasuri is talking about, trying to identify with the struggle for justice, not only in yourself or even in your own community, but in something as big as the you know the national project of liberation itself which is like hard for christians to swallow i think especially in the imperial core where the last thing you should ever do is identify with the nation state (laughs) do not identify with the united states right now or or canada or whatever i don't know why some marxists are dumb enough to do that but they are nevertheless um but i think you know there's something about committing to that struggle for justice that really matters yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the case of Sergio RSA, it's like, um, uh, can you can you listen to the nation state asking you to harvest sugar? And like, that's different, right? right? That's <laughs> right, right. that's ve- that's very different than like you know doing your patriotic duty of, I don't know, joining the army or whatever other dumb stuff people in the yeah. United States want you to do. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, well, Balasuria ends this book in a pretty interesting way. And uh, I'll read it out and we'll see how much time we have to parse it out. But I think it's a a good word to sort of close the the book on. Uh, He says, in this total mission, we meet Jesus Christ more fully. The more deeply we're committed to the human cause and the care of nature, the more truly we're identified with Jesus, the Christ, who gave his life in service to others. The churches, too, will grow to maturity insofar as they die to themselves in service to all. This is the same spirituality of the emptying of ourselves as persons and groups in courageous service to others in today's world situation, always beginning with our local context. The churches and their institutions will live only in dying to self for others, for this is the law of the gospel. It's the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the defenseless, and and defenseless nature that may point the churches to the way of the cross, the unique path to the resurrection. And I think that is such suggestive imagery, having the church die to itself, not looking out for its own self-interest or reproducing itself or maintaining its position or whatever, but sort of using all the powers and abilities and you know resources at its disposal to throw in with the cause of the oppressed. That is like the way that it will uh, find itself again. And I think that is also such an interesting thing for Belisaria. He's not calling for kind of like, a Unitarian emptying out of all the claims of Christianity in light of meeting others and even incorporating other faiths into the Eucharist or into the, uh, the liturgy or whatever. Um, instead, he's trying to say, you know, it's really only by encountering others and making ourselves available to others that we'll figure out what it means to be Christian in the first place. And I think that's actually a pretty profound challenge. I think it's a, a pretty active paradox when it comes to trying to create a type of stability in something that is offering a moral vision about the world like Christianity there's a certain type of action that like you're supposed to be taking within Christianity right and as we've seen throughout liberation theology it's like choosing the side of the poor engaging in the struggle doing that kind of stuff to kind of transform the world but it's also trying to fix itself in the world as some type of like everlasting institution and 
it does so, you know, in a way that <laughs> makes it difficult to achieve the justice it's also after. The paradox is you're trying so hard to enact a particular vision in the world, but but when you're doing that and you're also trying to preserve a particular type of social order, what you're always going to do is like kind of be self-defeating. You're always going to be mm-hmm. like working against yourself in a really difficult way. But what Belisaria is giving you here is something different and I think kind of helpful, right? That like the fixity of the church is not super important to him. Um, and maybe we can let go of that in a lot of ways uh, toward pursuing a more justice-oriented spirituality. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, Balasuri's life is, I think, a testament to how difficult this path really is. Like, some theologians say stuff like this, and you're like, I guess, but, you know, that's easy to write. Um, Balasuria, he was committed to this enough to, you know, say things that were, I guess, like incendiary enough to get him excommunicated and then also committed to the church enough to not like accept that and you know find his way back into the church and be like i'm gonna be here because i'm committed to sorting it out in this institution with this institution and so on and i think that is also just a a great challenge to be like this is a guy who (laughs) just wasn't gonna just write about it but was like i'm going to figure out a way to you know prompt the church to die to itself and that is pretty threatening also to uh our established theologies to ecclesial powers and so on and also like good on the vatican as conservative as it was at the time for also giving balisuri a chance to to get back in and finally letting him in too so i think it's like his story is a great uh a great example of what it means to really commit to those ideas in practice and not only in writing books yeah, exactly. Um, it is. It's a really inspiring word, I think, for being a Christian amidst like thinking about global solidarity and the struggle for liberation. It's a tough one, I guess, though. It's it's always an uphill battle. Um, people yeah. in power are not going to particularly like you, I think, is kind of the, is the moral of the story. You know, they want <laughs> they want more giving and like uh, more money in, in the baskets and you're going to want something different and you'll <laughs> always kind of just be at odds, I guess, and fine. Yeah. And I mean, to be clear, I'm not saying that everybody should get excommunicated. <laughs> I don't want to get excommunicated. I don't think it's like <laughs> something to aspire to or anything like that. Uh, and I think sometimes people wrongly read uh, theologians like Belisuria in that way that they're just like provocateurs or that it's like a feather yeah. in their cap to be excommunicated and like there are theologians who are like that and I find them extremely annoying I guess <laughs> you know but uh, it's really it's the the lesson I think is that Balasuria is, is really maybe just embodying what he says in, in these pieces about virtue as well you know like is it courageous is it prudent is it uh, you know moderation to sort of take this or that path and uh also, when you find out that you've overplayed your hand, you know, what do you have to do to, like, get yourself back in? Um, again, not cynically, but because you're, like, really willing to sort it out in this community. I mean, maybe that's a conversation that makes more sense in a tradition like Catholicism, but uh, yeah. I'm sure Protestants <laughs> have that that problem as well, just in a different way, maybe. Yeah, I think so. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm going to be courageous enough right now to know that the prudent choice is to end this episode. <laughs> yeah and uh i'm gonna exercise the virtue of moderation and stop talking right now <laughs> thanks for listening to the magnificast if you like what you heard you can support us on patreon at patreon.com slash the magnificast if you join us there you get an invite to our discord channel and that's very cool lots of great convos going on there um we're talking about 
I don't know, all kinds of hot, hot topic issues, especially with regard to the Chicago Teachers Union, which I'm finding very fascinating right now. Um, you also get access to our Behind the Paywall podcast called The Lock-In, where we do some silly stuff, and then we talk about current events, and uh, there's going to be a new one up shortly, so get excited for that. Our intro music is by Mario Armstrong, our outro music is by The Logical Spoon, and we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Lisa